Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, an, another example of the same kind of thing, and I'm, I'm concentrating on the Gospels because a lot of times these are where the problems show up, it is, um, is a text like uh, Mark 2, 1 through 3, 5, and 6, where we get five controversies literally on top of one another, one after another. They, they, they follow in sequence almost as if Mark is saying at the beginning of this gospel, I'm going to lead off by telling you the type of things that got Jesus into trouble. And uh, they literally are one after another. Uh, Luke does the same thing. He has the same five controversies in the same uh, basic order. But when we go to Matthew, lo and behold, these five controversies are stretched out across four chapters from chapter 8 to chapter 12. So what's going on there? Well, clearly you have, um, you know, on the assumption of, of, of Mark writing first, which, as you know, many believe is the case, uh, you might have Luke roughly or, you know, pretty closely following Mark in order, uh, while Matthew may have uh, followed a more uh, topical arrangement. Uh, you know, many believe that Matthew organized his gospel along the lines of five major discourses uh, on the, uh, you know, blueprint of, of the five books of Moses, uh, and then and, and, and he alternates those major discourses with major narrative uh, sections. Uh, again, you know, Matthew presenting his gospel almost as some sort of a catechesis, a, a, a teaching tool, possibly, for, for converse to Christianity. Yeah, I mean, once again, what you have is, looks like thematic bundling going on. Mm-hmm. If you look at Luke and Mark taking all those controversial stories and putting them together, obviously you're, you're, you're making a theological point there. You're bundling the, them together for emphasis. Matthew spreads them out for maybe other reasons. Uh, you know, Andreas mentions one as the five potential five books of Matthew structure. Uh, either way, it's once again the, an issue that chronology isn't definitive for gospel authors and shouldn't be used certainly as a point of contradiction. Yeah, and in fact, in the Matthean passage, you've got uh, a series of, of triads that happen in the way in which those are unfolded. You get you get three events, and then you get three sayings, and then you get three events and three sayings. So there, there are structural things happening on both ends that are uh, where either topics or juxtaposition is happening that that look very planned. There's no doubt about that. You know, there is a cause an effect and association that's involved in doing historical writing to point out relationships, and sometimes those uh, mean more to the author than simply giving you the sequence of what it is that you're dealing with. Let me get. Let me add one more to the gospel and and. a listing, and this one is a little bit different. Uh, you mentioned the Quirinius census. There's no doubt that's probably one of the more famous and probably one of the more difficult problems uh, that we face in the New Testament. It certainly writes in the high on my list of of issues in Luke Acts that are that are um, difficult to discuss. In all honesty, uh, and and here the issue is not so much what's going on within the scripture because. You know, we don't have any other mention of this. Here, the issue is the association of what's going on in in the historical material that surrounds Scripture and that's more or less contemporary to it. Michael, you want to kind of lay out the nature of the problem for people? Yeah, I mean, you've got a, a key issue here with the date of Quirinius' census and what we know from Josephus, if I'm not mistaken, on this issue, um, and they don't match up. Uh, and one of the key issues is, well, you know, who's right? Is Josephus right about when the census was offered? 
Uh, is Luke right? There's also the, ex the issue of not just the dating, but also the extent of, this, of the census. Could there have been a census like this where people would have to go back to their hometown? That whole issue, whether that's you know, plausible or reliable. Um, you know, actually, and very much take a similar solution. I think I've heard you, Daryl, give at some point in the past on this. Um, you know, suggesting that the census would have taken many, many years to complete. Yeah, we're um, not in the age of the internet. This is the ancient yeah, world. And that, that, that the idea of, of whose name attached to it mm -hmm. may be the one who finished the census, not the one who instituted the census, which is part of the potential solution here. Um, regardless, I, I think you also have to take, a take time to look at the fact that maybe Josephus is wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I read an article just recently, and, and maybe one of you can remind me where this appeared. I want to say it was in one of the major journals where someone was actually challenging the reliability of Josephus' account in this regard, and that Josephus may have been confused about the census. So you have to also keep that uh, issue in mind. It's not always immediately assumed that an external report is reliable and that the Gospels have to adjust. Sometimes it can be the opposite. Yeah, and of course the way Josephus lays this out is he, he, he identifies the census, he ties it to Quirinius. Quirinius is right, it's, uh, dates for, for when he is could have had supervision over this would have been around AD 6 or whatever and of course it's associated with Jesus's birth which is much earlier so that's the actual about 4 BC I think is that's where right so that's yeah. the nature of the problem mm -hmm. uh, got about and, a 10 year gap yeah exactly and and so people say well look see here Luke got this wrong it's clear that the infancy material is is made up to get Jesus down to uh, the Jerusalem area that kind of thing that's how the the text is handled but I just think we don't know enough about about the logistics of how long administratively such things take now sometimes I use modern analogies with a little bit of humor just to keep people you know thinking with me on this and I, I say if you think about how much and how long it takes our government sometimes to institute its policies from the time something is proposed to the times it's actually enacted I said you might get this uh, and and how this could have happened and what the nature of the associations are sometimes the process of administration goes very very uh, slowly between conception and and planning and actual uh, and the actual institution of something that's that's in place. Andreas, you have anything you want to add to this particular example? First of all, I know you're too modest, but let me do that and refer our listeners to Daryl's two-volume massive commentary on Luke, and I often refer people to, you know, uh, what you do with the evidence, but it's also a good case study that sometimes we just have limited evidence. We simply don't know a few things, at least, related to New Testament chronology, and I think this is one such case. Hopefully, more evidence will be forthcoming, but in the meantime, the question is, are we going to give uh, the New Testament and, and, and Scripture a sympathetic reading, uh, especially uh, when it proves trustworthy in all the many instances where it it is, uh, you know, corroborated by external evidence, or are we going to uh, apply some sort of a skeptical uh, mindset to Scripture and, and, and are essentially putting the, the, the burden of, 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 of proof on the Scriptures to, to, to prove itself innocent and we already pronounce it guilty at the outset? I think that would be a serious mistake, but that's exactly what you find in some of those aha moments types of scholars. Yeah, I think it's important to remind people that when you're dealing with material that goes back 2,000 years, what we actually have dug up and found and that allows us insight into these periods is actually pretty minimal of certainly of what was originally all there. 
Um, you know, we don't have vast arrays of government records. We don't have any government records from Pilate at all. Everything that we know about him is what someone else uh, tells us about him, that kind of thing. Uh, and so we're only dealing with a very thin layer of, of what, uh, what possibly we could know if we had access to more material. That should build a little bit of modesty about what it is that, that we know. In fact, much of what we know about the history of first century um, Israel, if we didn't have Josephus, we would be in, terrific, uh, in a terrifically tough bind in terms of figuring out what, what's going on. And, uh, and so that's another thing uh, worth reminding people as we think about these, these array of, of kind of New Testament issues that come up. Just in general, I would just encourage people to consult the excellent, more technical uh, commentaries that are available, New Testament introductions, you know, whether it's the cradle, cross, and the crown. We have, you know, detailed analyses of these, some books like Mike mentioned the, uh, you know, some of the books that he's done on the subject. Uh, the the blog post that that Mike actually asked me to respond to, uh, one of the aha moments. What I found is that there was this, uh, you know, assumption that there's this problem, and the person was the first one to stumble over it. And then I, I went straight to uh, Daryl's commentary and to Don Carson's Matthew commentary, and what I found that those scholars, lo and behold, had already were well aware of, of the of the difficulty and had very ad adequately addressed it. And so sometimes we, uh, you know, if we uh, don't uh, consult the commentaries, then then we're really missing out. Well, you know, I'll add to that. I mean, one of the one of the sort of MOs of the critics is to try to present these things as new discoveries that no one's ever noticed before. And to Andreas's point, that becomes very frustrating from the perspective of evangelicals that have looked at these things, because we know that these things have been addressed time and time again throughout the history of the church, and oftentimes even back to the early patristic writers have dealt with a lot of these issues. Um, and when those contradictions were presented by the critics without any acknowledgement of prior uh, discussions of this, it becomes very frustrating because it almost makes it look like, look, here in 2014, I did a PhD somewhere and look what I discovered. And then I, I became aware the Bible is not what I think it is. And of course, our response is, well, you know, where have you been in the history of the discussion here? Because it's it's been discussed many times before. Yeah, it it, it is a it, it's an it's an interesting psychology. I don't know what other word to use. That's kind of emerging in these conversations about about uh, what is going on. And of course, the, these <laughs> these discussions have been with us for quite some time. Uh, you know, the the old classic book that uh, led to the definition of uh, of fundamentalism, the fundamentals the five volumes that were put out in the beginning of the uh, the 20th century were responses to many of these kinds of questions that, that have come up, and they've come up again and again and again and again, and the responses exist again and again. I want to mention another resource, uh, since we were mentioning resources. Brobden Holman is in the process of putting out what's called the, the Apologetics uh, Commentary on the Bible, which is designed specifically to go through the Scripture in sequence and, and deal with the kinds of questions skeptics raise about the trustworthiness of the Scripture. That's actually the assignment for the writers. Now, they've only produced Volume 1 so far. This is uh, Matthew through Acts, but their plan is to cover the whole of Scripture uh, with these with these volumes, 
and in many of those volumes, these issues will come up. The options and discussions are there. In some cases, there are footnotes to direct you to more complete uh, presentations of the evidence and that kind of thing. Again, I want to be fair. I don't want to suggest that every one of these problems has a has a clean, resolvable solution that you sit on when you're all done and you say, yeah, that's how you solve this one. There are several problems that exist where you go, there are two or three four explanations that that might work and it's not clear which one of them actually is in play here but it but here are at least the options that are in play that say uh, the writer didn't get this wrong because they're dealing with it from a different perspective let me raise another example that's of a slightly different character I'm thinking of the scene where Jesus walks on the water and at the end of the scene in Mark you get this discussion about the disciples were hard-headed and they just didn't get it at the end of the scene in Matthew, you get the discussion, and they worship the Son of God. I mean, you couldn't get two more different capstone endings to the same event. And so someone comes along and they say, how in the world can you get such two distinct opposite ends uh, to a particular incident? Uh, uh, you know, one's very negative about where the disciples are, the other's very positive about where the disciples are. Okay, uh, what, what do we do with a text like this? Well, I often, uh, in my New Testament introduction classes here, actually uh, hand out a handout with exactly those types of passages, the so-called misunderstanding motif, and then I show them there's a little over half a dozen passages, certainly in Mark, where uh, he adds this editorial comment at the end saying and the disciples still did not understand, or, or he even uses the Greek word sclero, which means, you know, they were hard-hearted. Uh, in their understanding. Yeah, you don't want to get sclerosis in the no. scripture. <laughs> See, in Matthew, and of those, say, maybe seven or so Markan passages, there's still there's a negative commentary in a few of them, but not nearly as many. And so clearly you see that for Mark, uh, this is a particular burden to show that, I think, prior to the resurrection, nobody, not even the disciples, not even Jesus' inner circle, truly understood who he was. Mm -hmm. And we see that in all four Gospels, uh, that that uh, even where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the passage you mentioned earlier, uh, in short order, it turns out that he wasn't thinking about a crucified Messiah. And so, uh, you see, again, it's more a matter of emphasis that may be stronger in Mark, for some reason less strong in Matthew. And I think that's actually very helpful. We sometimes think of those differences as, as liabilities, but in many ways they're actually assets because they give us uh, a clue as to what was important for the different evangelists. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the reaction of the disciples is so multidimensional. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even the, even the same event, they can have multiple types of reactions and even phases of those same reactions where they're initially shocked by something and then uh, you know, moments later in the same event, they begin to see it in a little bit of different light, and then eventually they worship Jesus, at least in some sense, to things. And what you end up seeing is that the authors, as Andreas sense, said, tend to, to hone in on one part of a multidimensional reaction. I mean, I'll give you another example of this. this is the, the thief on the cross mm -hmm. instance, right? Luke's the only one that tells us about the thief on the cross repenting. And the other gospel accounts make it clear that both thieves on the cross heap scorn on Jesus the whole time. Well, you know, is there a contradiction there? Well, again, you've got a, a, a multidimensional response from the individuals on the cross over a period of time, and that response ebbs and flows and changes. Luke hones in on a change that the other disciples are silent about. 
It's a very similar situation to the walking on water. Yeah, I like to tell people that, that historical events have depth. And because exactly. they have depth, you've got to ask yourself, what angle is the particular author looking at? When you, Mark seems to be looking at the angle of, why didn't the disciples click in at the beginning when Jesus showed up on the water and said, oh, yeah, this, you know, we should appreciate who's here. And he describes it as being hard-hearted. They don't get it. But if you ask what resulted from the event, if I can use the NFL phrase, upon further review, you know, where did the disciples end up on the other end when they looked at the end of the event and they looked back and they said, man, someone who could do that, that tells us something about who he is, and it led into the, a reflection in worship. And so those two things don't contradict each other. They actually show between them the growth. Now, the complaint sometimes comes that, well, why don't we get an author who does that for us, who puts that all together for us in the kind of seamless way that I've just described it? And and that's actually – it's a, I mean, in one sense, it's a good question, but it's also a question that who can answer that question? I can't get in the mind of the author and know why they've made the choices that they've made. I can just deal with what it is that they give us. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Well, I think it also has to do with the limitations of any history. I mean, I mean, in a modern world where people think in terms of video recordings more than they think in terms of narratives, you know, they're, they're, they're thinking of history as why isn't it almost like I'm watching this being filmed and someone's just writing it down in certain words as it's being filmed. They don't realize it. History, in one sense, is always limited, always has a, a dimension of, of finiteness to it and can't cover the depth in any one account. And so, you know, whereas the account includes everything is, su is such a, a, a missing question or a missed question for people because it assumes that you could do that. But I tell my students all the time, even if you filmed it, you wouldn't have what you think you have because you still have to film it from a certain angle and you didn't capture something in the background or off the scene over here. And so every history is incomplete. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I want to say in talking about depth, because I think this is important to think through too, is that sometimes you don't understand the significance of an event until subsequent events take place that put it in a context. And so sometimes you get the idea of, well, this idea came from the early church or it came or emerged later. And then the, with, the, with the additional suggestion that because it's late, somehow it's not historical. But that doesn't follow at all. Uh, I, and I, again, I'll use another illustration. Sports, to me, uh, runs like theology sometimes. You, we've all watched games where the announcer, because there's a turnover, a fumble or an interception in an American football game, for example, will say, you know, Mo is shifting. You know, But you actually don't know if the momentum has actually shifted, and that's the turning point of the game. 
until the game plays itself out and you see what happens on the other end of the of the fumble recovery or the interception. And and so sometimes you understand what's happening in a particular event upon further review. And a writer has a choice between explaining how that event happened at the time at which it was experienced with the uncertainty about whether this was going to unfold in a certain way or not. Or he can choose to tell to identify it as the turning point because precisely because he knows how the rest of the game turned out and that this was the turning point in the game. Neither of those views impacts the historicity of what it is you're describing. It's just that the frame of the histor- of the historical comment and historicity is, is different, and so you're bringing in different factors as a result. I think when I talk about depth of history and historical events and recording history, I, I'm trying to remind students of that dimension of the equation as well. Absolutely, and I think you know that you all know the work by Richard Bauckham, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels, his eyewitness testimony. And I think for our viewers and our, our listeners, just remember that that the Gospels are first and foremost eyewitness testimony, uh, as opposed to this older approach that looks as at the Gospels as just kind of literary texts that are being cut and pasted together in in some shape or form, and that there's this living dimension that you brought out there with the football analogy, you know, that that defies this this one-dimensional analysis. And I think, ironically, you have Bible critics sometimes be more fundamentalistic and rigid in their thinking than those of us who are supposedly the narrow-minded ones. Yeah, and go, no, go ahead. No, I mean, that's that's exactly the Bart Ehrman problem, as we all know, is that, you know, Bart coming out of his evangelical background, which was more on the fundamentalist side, had certain ideas of what inerrancy had to mean. And so all it took was some small issue in the Gospels to just shatter that whole thing. And as Andreas points out, I mean, historically, the evangelical conception of inerrancy has been much more sophisticated than that. Um, and so we get accused of sort of having no uh, sort of awareness of the genre complexities, we get accused of not taking into account all these issues. But I would argue the opposite is often true, okay. is that when you look deep into the evangelical understanding of inerrancy, it's fairly developed, uh, whereas a lot of the accusations of what counts as an error actually the ones take a more fundamentalist approach. Yeah, let me give one more example. We're probably going to exhaust our time just by talking about gospel examples, but that's <laughs> fine. We can come back and do this again. Um, uh, let me give another example that's a famous one that Bart Ehrman put forward in Jesus Interrupted, and it is the sayings of Jesus on the cross uh, as he's um, experiencing his suffering, and he argues that uh, you know, in Mark we get Psalm 22:1, "My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken me?" We get Jesus despairing and you know, wrestling through the agony of what He's going through. And then we come to Luke, and Luke says, "You know, into Your hands I commit My spirit." This is a confident Jesus. There's no indication of despair whatsoever. You know, so I mean, so we, so you put the Gospels together, and you kind of have this schizophrenic picture: Is Jesus this despairing person in the cross, or is He this confident? person in the cross. And the suggestion is I have to choose between one of those two options. I don't uh, – I can't think about, again, using the picture of depth, the idea about Jesus moving through a variety of motions while, while he's uh, – Hanging on the cross. Uh, that that's one that I like to point out, and then I have a I have a trump card I want to eventually play on this one. But what do you guys think about that particular example? Well, uh, Daryl, as you know, you and I and, and Josh Shatro have written another one, but but two books: Truth Matters and Truth in the Culture of Doubt, where we 
take up that example at some length, but just in brief, Psalm 22, which Jesus uh, prays, uh, expresses trust in the end, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And at the same point, uh, you see in Luke, Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane in deep agony, saying, you know, not not my will, but yours be done, just shortly before that. So even in Luke, you see Jesus agonizing over his impending death. He's not just this, uh, you know, uh, uh, emotionless, you know, uh, machine that 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 does not deeply sense what is about to happen to him. And likewise, in Mark, you see Jesus very confident and trusting, you know, all the way through, multiple times predicting uh, his his uh, his forthcoming crucifixion and resurrection. And so, like you said, only someone who can narrowly, you know, just kind of compartmentalize pericope in the Gospels can end up with those surface apparent contradictions. But but. If anyone uh, does not approach the Gospels already with this skeptical mindset, but gives it a more open-minded, uh, empathetic uh, read, will realize that that both Gospels uh, show Jesus both in agony and trusting God all the way, you know, to the cross. I, I would add that this highlights one of the the major fallacies of Ehrman's reasoning. He does a lot, which is the argument from silence. Uh, if a Gospel says something about Jesus. Uh, it must mean that nothing else happened and these other things didn't take place. And so he takes the silence of one gospel as evidence that it didn't happen. But, but as we all know, that's a fallacious argument. Just because one gospel doesn't record a certain emotion of Jesus doesn't mean he didn't also have that emotion. And so Ehrman, you know, absolutizes the accounts he comes across. He does this with Christology. He does this with lots of things where he says if an author leaves something out, he must not have believed it. Well, once again, historically, you just can't say that. Lots of things get left out. The cross was a long period of time, as we know. We hung there for hours and hours. Going through a whole range of emotions would make sense uh, in any you know, recounting of it. Now, here's the trump card. If you actually look at these accounts and lay them next to one another, what you find is that Mark alludes to a second cry from the cross. Uh, and when you lay the Lucan account next to the Markan account, the point at which the remark of trust appears is exactly at the point of Mark where that second cry remark is made. It's almost as if Luke has come along and said, Mark didn't tell you what Jesus said here, but here's what Jesus said here. And uh, granted, Luke doesn't have the my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me part of the, uh, of the account. Fair enough. But he doesn't slot this saying in the same position where my God, my God, thou, uh, thou hast forsaken me appears in Mark. He has it later in the account, and it goes right into that slot. And if you look at it in a synopsis where you compare the accounts next to one another, you can see that's what's going on. So that already suggests to you that something's happening here that shows that we're not at the exact same point, uh, and we aren't looking at the portrait at the same point of time. Again, adding this idea of depth that comes with these with these events. Well, our time is almost up. Let me, I do have one more example that I think is probably one of the more famous examples, and actually I think it has to be said, like the Quirinius one, is one of the harder examples, and that is the timing of when Jesus gets crucified. Um, it does, is the Last Supper 
uh, a Passover meal, in which case the Passover lambs have already been sacrificed, or is uh, the time when Jesus is said to be on the cross in John where the association with Passover lambs is made with his sacrifice there, is that the time? You, this is one in which you you <laughs> got a lot of sacrifices in a lot of days. You can't have Passover lambs being uh, sacrificed in both those time slots. So something is going on. Um, how do you guys handle that one? Well, I think in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's clear that it is a Passover meal because you see Jesus essentially, you know, celebrating this meal with with his inner circle, with the twelve. Uh, and I, I think most would agree that that's in fact what you have. I think most scholars then question whether or not John matches the the Synoptic portrayal, but but. Personally, I, I think it's important to understand that the Passover was not just one day, it was an entire week. And so it, 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 it commenced with the celebration of the Passover, but then it, 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 it continued in the, the festival of the unleavened bread. And so I think uh, in John you see that, that, that Jesus also celebrated uh, you know, a festive meal with his disciples in the upper room, and even though we don't have uh, the words of institution of of of, of the uh, the new covenant, uh, I think. Uh, the best evidence suggests that even there you have uh, John presenting Jesus as celebrating a Passover with his disciples. I've written a lengthy article on this in a, in a book edited by Tom Schreiner, if anyone wants to look at all the technical details. But, and uh, and you're the Johannine expert, but I've, <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd at least put on the table that when you read John 6, regardless of what you think about whether sacramentalism is in that chapter or not, there seems to be that seems to be written with at least some sense of an awareness that there is a last Supper and a Lord's table, that kind of thing, uh, so that even though John doesn't depict that uh, in the upper room, he he does allude to it. In fact, John's gospel, I, I think this is important to say, if you compare John's gospel to the synoptics about, and this is a rough percentage, 85, 88 percent of it isn't duplicated anywhere in the synoptics. It's, it's almost as if John, and John's certainly got to be aware of the general synoptic tradition out there, even if he's not aware of the individual Gospels per se, right. has come along and said, I'm going to tell you more about Jesus than these other accounts that you're familiar with and kind of uh, give you some additional stuff around it. So he doesn't feel the need to repeat a, a lot of the things that they're already uh, very aware of. Okay, well, that's how you handle it, Andreas. Michael, how do you handle the, the dating issue in the crucifixion? Yeah, I mean, you, there are several passages that the critics point out as evidence that the Passover lambs were happening on Friday, not on Thursday. I find most of them entirely unpersuasive. The only passage I think presents at all a challenge is the one in John 18, where it says that the, the, the Jewish leaders did not want to enter into the house of Pilate for fear they'd be contaminated, of course, and not be able to take the Passover. And the Greek term there, Pascha, is what's being used. Mm -hmm. that, that almost looks like it proves their case. The problem, though, is that uh, ritual impurity due to a Gentile is easily solved by bathing and waiting for sundown, and then you can partake in the meal that night. So whatever thing they were worried about partaking in must not have been at night, which would have been the main Passover meal, because they wouldn't have had any trouble washing, waiting for sundown, and being pure for the evening meal. So what I tell my students when we talk about this issue is that whatever is, is bothering the Jewish leaders there in terms of a meal they can't participate in, it cannot be the evening meal, otherwise entering a Gentile household would not be a problem. So I suggest that's one of the other smaller meals throughout the week that were often happening midday. Now the term Pascha, as Andreas pointed out, has a wide semantic range and can mean all kinds of different things. So I think that argument from John 18 actually proves 
the, 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 the traditional understanding, not the, not the critics' understanding. Yeah, my take on this is it, it goes to where Andreas started, which is, and, and again, I'll use an analogy, uh, when we think of, of, of Pascha and, and we think of unleavened bread, it's all one feast in the Jewish mind. And what's interesting is, is that we have examples where Passover is used for the entire week and unleavened bread is used for the entire week. I think Josephus does it in the reverse. And so – uh, the point here is, is that you've got eight days. Now, technically, you can distinguish the Passover part that comes from the beginning from the unleavened bread that follows in the week that follows. I mean, you can do that. But oftentimes, in popular shorthand, as is often the case, they called it all Passover. They called it all unleavened bread. And, and, you deal, and so the analogy is, it's like our Christmas season. And I usually do this illustration. I said, how many of you work in an office that has a Christmas party? You know, and everyone puts up their hand. How many of you celebrate that Christmas party on Christmas Day at the office? And of course, no, almost no one puts up their hand because no one's at the office on Christmas. And the point that I'm making is, is that this, this holiday casts a shadow you know, over the period. We're in a certain period, and the period itself is what's represented here. And so there are actions that Jesus can partake in in the midst of this whole that can have association without necessarily identifying the particular day that we're on in, in relationship to it. So if Jesus is hanging on a cross and they've just celebrated the Passover, you know, that can be put in a, in a chronological framework uh, that makes that all very ex acceptable. And it brings up another distinction that it probably is a good place for us to kind of wrap up and summarize, and that is that sometimes the idea of inerrancy communicates a level of precision that the text itself is not attempting to generate. The text can be accurate without being precise. In other words, without ask, answering the specific question we may bring to it, because the text is not attempting to answer that question, it's doing something else. And so distinguishing between accuracy and precision in dealing with inerrancy is an important way to keep yourself from being tripped up by making the Bible do more than it's attempting to do. Uh, I totally agree with that, Daryl. I I hope your paper, I think it's a paper at ETS that you gave, will be published in some form. Because it actually it. is published in a book that was edited by uh, uh, by James Hoffmeyer and Excellent. and Dennis McGarry. Uh, uh, I think the title of it goes to does history matter to the faith or something. That's a that's a bad paraphrase of the title, but it's something uh, it's something like that. See, it wasn't very accurate. But yeah, yeah, exactly right. I bet I bet you people will be able to find the reference because they get the gist. So, uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, any, Michael, you want to add anything to the to the chronology example of John? Well, yeah, I mean, I, the analogy that I always give my students about precision versus accuracy is what do you say when someone asks how old you are? You know, if you ask a person how old they are and they say, well, I'm 50, for example, and you say, well, technically you're wrong because you're actually 50 in six months and three days and this many hours and minutes, you would laugh at that. You know, uh -huh. in, our, in our general use of dates in terms of how old we are, we always round it out and give it a general time frame. And so... In that sense, you're not precise, but you are accurate, and that, I think, feeds your, your distinction. And I, again, I think we have to remember we're dealing with popular literature written as ancient historiography that's used to certain conventions. All these things are in play as we deal with these examples of the New Testament. Well, we've only 
scratch the surface of some of these examples that have been dealt with. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm going to uh, ask you guys to reserve a date in the future where we can come back to this for a podcast to be named later, since we use sports analogies here, and uh, um, and hopefully we can pick up on some of the other examples. But I hope that the thrust of what people are seeing in the examples that we've gone through and kind of talked our way through in some detail in some cases is is that is that there. There isn't a reason simply to walk away from the Scripture and say, oh, it it just errs. In fact, I I like to make the case that the easy position to take is to say, oh, it's just wrong and not look at it, Mm -hmm. you know, to just label it as wrong and and walk away. Sometimes uh, it's in the midst of doing the work and asking how this might work that you actually perhaps surface. what the potential relationship may be, and you actually gain a depth to your Bible reflection and your Bible study that's valuable to pursue uh, as you look at the background and look at other the, uh, uh, the other features uh, that are in play. So I want to thank you guys for uh, being a part of this, probably round one, and, uh, uh, and uh, look forward hopefully to having you back in the future in discussing uh, an issue of importance about inerrancy. And my, my hope is, is that this discussion has proved helpful to those of you who have listened. We thank you for being a part of the table and look forward to having you back with us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.